Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The first guest of the evening is truly a poet. He's an artist. He is a friend and an inspiration to anyone who I think who has ever played the guitar or tried to write poetry. Would you please welcome Gordon Lightfoot. Lightfoot Song by Song, a proud member of the That's Not Canon podcast network. I am your host, Mike Messner, and along with me today is a fellow Lightfoot fan from Markham, Ontario, Canada, making his second appearance on the show, Michael Howitt. Michael, welcome back to Carefree Highway Revisited. Thanks, Michael. It's great to be back again. Well, today we're talking about Black Day in July from the Did She Mention My Name album. That came out in 1968. Before we start delving into the actual content of the song, why did you want to talk about this one in particular? What does it mean to you personally? Well, I've always thought that this song is different from anything else uh, Gordon's ever written or performed. I think it's a very unique and powerful song. It's a major departure for Gordon that it's not a picturesque or peaceful or wistful or romantic song. It's really an angry song of rage and horror. And right out of the gate, you know, Gordon's vocal comes in pretty quickly and it's you know black day in july black day in july and those words are repeated 20 times throughout the song so you, you can't get away from it it's, i think it's it's aggressive it's dark it's blunt in your face and unlike anything else he's ever written the first time i ever heard gordon lightfoot was my dad had an eight track of the did she mention my name album and uh, so i used to sit in the car and listen to this album for hours and hours so it's it's a special song for me because uh you know, there's so many great songs in the album. You know, Did you mention my name, Wherefore and Why? And Mountains of Mariana is probably my favorite. But I always liked this song. I thought it was very topical and a lot of meat to the lyrics. And I actually did a report on this song in high school as a school project. And I got an A-plus on the project. So, so I guess I did okay with it. So. <laughs> well, obviously, it meant a lot to you or you wouldn't have done yeah. quite as well with it. Yeah, it is a protest song. It's overtly political. It's about American politics rather than Canadian politics. And I know that Lightfoot was very reticent about adding his voice to what was going on in the States uh, in the 60s. But he did have a real affection and affinity for Detroit. And he really hasn't done anything like it since. Um, no. He may have alluded to things politically, but there's never been anything that would be classified as a protest song that I think he has done since this particular song, which, by the way, he doesn't do anymore because I think it's really in its own context. We'll talk more about that later. What to you these days is the best context for you or the best setting in which to listen to the song? You talked about having the eight track when you were a kid yeah. and listening <laughs> yeah. to it out in the car. What about today? What would be a good setting for you to listen to it? Well, well today, I, I don't know so much about the setting, but whenever I see something going on in the world, like protests or clashes or inequalities, I see that. And I always think of this song and I want to listen to this song again, because I, I listen to the lyrics and I think, you know, this song is what, back from 1968, but still it 
the lyrics ring so true today. It's like things may have changed, but they haven't changed all that much. And I think this song applies just as much today as it did back then. So it's kind of like whenever I see this happening, I'm, I want to listen to the song and I'm usually by myself. I listen to it. You know, it's still a powerful song for me today. Yeah. And I think it could fit into the George Floyd demonstrations two years ago. Yeah. It's the same kind of attitude or the same kind of series of events that happened back then. For yeah. me, if I were not watching some sort of demonstration, or if that wasn't going on where this song would be evoked, then I would want to listen to this going from someplace to someplace in a car or in a plane. And I think about early afternoon, which to me is always one of the more thoughtful times of the day as the more than the halfway point of the day has come. And it's what's going to happen for the rest of the day. And it's where my mind tends to go during those kinds of situations. Michael, do you know how the song got written? I mean, we've kind of gone around the edges of it, but what was the setting in which Lightfoot was compelled to write the song? Well, I read a couple of books, biographies about about Lightfoot, and I kind of revisited this song, and one was Nicholas Jennings' uh, biography. There was also one that um, Maynard Collins wrote back in 1988, and there's also, I guess, a five-minute interview on CBC radio that's still in the archives, so... So I kind of got the sense that Life was a major star here in Canada at the time, but he didn't really have a breakthrough in the U.S. He was kind of known in the U.S. as a songwriter that other artists had hits with, like Marty Robbins and Peter, Paul, and Mary. He didn't really have a hit in the States yet. So I don't know if this was an attempt by him to try to gain some visibility in the U.S. Like you said earlier, he definitely had a, an affinity for Detroit. It was like a second home to him. It's only four hours away from Toronto on the Highway 401. It's just across the river from Windsor, Ontario. And he mentioned he'd played clubs there on numerous occasions. He had friends there. I think he, he actually stayed with Joni Mitchell and uh, her husband when they had a place in Detroit back around that time. So, so I think the fact that this happened in a place that he felt close to was the impetus to write the song. And it was almost like when he wrote the record in Fitzgerald, he's seen the article in Newsweek about the, the sinking and it's, you know, Detroit, the Great Lakes. It's the same geographical area that he has infinity too. So he's seen this happening and he wanted to, to write a song about it. You know, so I think that's kind of was the, the genesis, genesis of the song. It was around the Detroit race riot of 1967. Sometimes it's called the Detroit Rebellion. Apparently, what happened, for anybody who doesn't know, is that the Detroit police did a raid on an unlicensed after-hours bar, and a number of people gathered outside to watch this, and that led to chanting against the police, and then it turned violent after that. And the violence went on for five days, and the governor, George Romney, father of Mitt, ordered the Michigan uh, National Guard into Detroit. Lyndon Johnson sent a couple of uh, airborne divisions from the Army. 43 people died. Almost 1,200 people were injured. There were more than 7,000 arrests, and 400 buildings were destroyed. And it was a scale of destruction that was not to be matched until the Rodney King riots of 1992. And it was the biggest riots, if you want to call it that, since the New York City draft riots during the American Civil War. And the first time he played this song in Detroit, he said, this is about your city. I'm sorry it has to be this way. So it's, it's true that the fact that he felt the need to sort of apologize 
or to express regret. I think that speaks a lot about the kind of feelings that he had for Detroit. Yeah, it's a very Canadian thing to do to to apologize. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I still get apologies from my Canadian friends about the War of eighteen twelve. It was a long time ago, and I'm over yeah. it. But. <laughs> Let's talk about the lyrics a little bit. Black Day in July, Motor City Madness has touched the countryside. The thing that I think of is that this was not something that was just confined to Detroit. In the days and the weeks after that riot, there was a riot in Highland Park and River Rouge, Southgate, Hamtrak, Pontiac, Flint, Saginaw, Grand Rapids. So this is triggering all sorts of things that are happening way far away from Detroit. I don't know any of those cities or whether they would qualify as the countryside, but these are things that are happening all over the place. Yeah, I I think exactly what you say. It's not just a Detroit thing that uh, these, it seems what was happening in Detroit, it was just kind of uh, things that come to a head in the riot. It was things that have been going on for years and years and years. You know, the inequalities having to do with um, racial inequalities, with housing, with unemployment, police relations. It it was just had come to a head and it's naive to think it's just a Detroit thing. Like, I remember hearing this song, you know, when, like I said, when I was a kid, like we were here in Toronto, the good. So surely this can't be happening in Toronto. It's Detroit. But I think what he's saying here is it's not just Detroit. It's where you live as well. Don't be too naive to think it can't happen where you are as well. And it did happen. Um, There were events in Toledo and Lima, Ohio. There was one in New York City and in Rochester, Cambridge, Maryland, Inglewood, New Jersey, Houston, and Tucson um, in the weeks following. So there's a reason that the 1967 was called the long hot summer. It's only because Lightfoot had that connection, I think this uh, song got written, because you'd had things like that that happened in Watts in 1965. There were other uprisings, and there would certainly be more the following summer when uh, MLK is killed. But Lightfoot didn't write about any of those, and it was only about Detroit because he had a place in his heart for the place. for sure. The doors are quickly bolted and the children locked inside to keep them safe, I would assume, because you don't want kids going out in a riot, Black right. Day in July. Yeah. The second verse, and the soul of Motor City is bared across the land as the book of law and order is taken in the hands of the sons of the fathers who were carried to this land. Yeah. When I first heard that, I thought it was referring just to anyone who was second generation. Um, And then as I thought about it, I thought, who's really involved with this? And really, it's talking about the descendants of enslaved people going back to 1619. Because the vast majority of African Americans in this country in the 1960s were descended from enslaved people. And so the sons of the fathers who were carried to this land, as opposed to they came over of their own free will. Yeah, they were brought over, yeah. I really like the line where he says, the soul of Motor City is buried across the land. It, it, it's like the community has been laid bare for all to see. It's it's like an open wound. And, um, you know, it's easy to look away, but to truly heal, I think you, you have to tend to that wound. You have to understand it and tend to it. And it's not a problem that's merely on the surface and embedded deep in the culture to deal with. Yeah, the same as you, Michael, the sons of the fathers were carried to this land. The fact they were carried is 
almost like they were brought over, not by their own free will, but they were carried over. And so, so I kind of took it as two ways where you said uh, the book of the law and order is taken in the hand. So, you know, in one respect, it could be no one side is without blame. So maybe the uh, these descendants have taken the law into their own hands. But on the other hand, maybe they're looking for equality to the existing laws. So there are laws there and they're striving how those laws applied fairly. So you know, police relations weren't good back in 1967 and in Detroit. And uh, maybe they're looking at a way to have those laws applied more equitably. Could be either way, but yeah, I definitely think it's the, the African-American descendants I was referring to here. We'll be right back to our conversation with Michael Howitt about Black Day in July. But first, a word from one of our podcast partners. Hello, my name is Sandro. And my name's Zach. We are historians. Well, movie historians. We're not qualified for anything else. Join us on our podcast, Oldie But A Goodie. Where, for all of 2022, we're reviewing movies from the year 2001. That's right. Every episode, we look at all the movies that came out that week back in 2001. Then we pick one film and we do a full synopsis review. It's it's Oldie But A Goodie. Sometimes, most of the time, we find bad movies. It's usually a fun time, but also usually one of us ends up pulling our hair out by the end of the episode. And we have a lot of hair between. Between us. What a selling point for the trailer. <laughs> yeah, I thought it was pretty exciting. Oldie but a goodie. Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, that's not kind of productions podcast. I can't help but think of the Black Panthers, yeah. who had just gotten started about a year before then. And the Black yeah. Panthers weren't mentioned in the song, but I'm right. quite certain that they were involved in Detroit because the whole genesis of the Black Panthers was police brutality and police relations in Oakland and then in other cities across the United States and maybe in Canada too. Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, the book of law and order taken to their hands. The people have taken the law into their own hands because they simply don't see another way yeah. um, to get yeah. that kind of justice. Black day in July in the streets of Motor City, there's a deadly silent sound. Now that's a little unclear to me because Silent sound is a contradiction in terms. And so a deadly yeah. silent sound doesn't make any sense to me. And I thought, well, maybe they're using silenced weapons, or it might have been just poetic license or the idea that racism is a deadly silent sound. Michael, what's your take on that line? Well, I almost thought deadly silent sound, like there's no voice of reason, maybe like somebody needs to speak up and speak some reason and that's not happening every you know everybody's silent on the root causes so i don't know if it's if that's one way to interpret it but that could be one way and the body of a dead youth lies stretched upon the ground there were eight young people who died in those riots if we're defining a young person as somebody under the age of 21 and i'm thinking he may have seen a particular picture in a newspaper on a tv broadcast I couldn't find any pictures of dead bodies from that riot. I did see a number of people lying on the ground in what appeared to be handcuffs. I yeah. didn't see any corpses. Um, I did look it up that the first kid who was killed in that riot was named Jason Jones. He was 15 years old, and he'd been sitting under a tree, and a gang of white young people was running by him, uh, and they were shooting at the police and the police were firing back. And this kid, Jason Jones was shot in the chest. 
Mm-hmm. So he was in the wrong place at the wrong time. Maybe yeah. there was a photo that uh, Gordon saw of that, but I, I really don't know. Yeah, I didn't. I've never seen anything specific that could be relating to this, but could be one of, you know, mm-hmm. of, of several people of use that were killed during the riot. Yeah, for sure. Upon the filthy pavements, no reason can be found. And to me, that's really just tragically beautiful because the pavements were indeed filthy in Detroit, not just because of what was going on in the riots, but because the city had a high poverty level. It was probably not well maintained, and it was especially not maintained in this particular area of the city. And there's a lot of detritus that's been thrown into the streets because of Molotov cocktails or the police throwing stuff at the protesters. Black Day in July, Motor City Madness has touched the countryside and the people rise in anger and the streets begin to fill. There were thousands of people who were involved in the events of those five days. So it's no wonder that the streets would be filling. By the second day... There were tons of people who were being arrested and never arraigned. And mm-hmm. I can tell you, as a someone who teaches civics, this is something that I teach a lot. Okay, the whole idea of habeas corpus, you mm-hmm. can't be just thrown in jail for no reason. Okay, a judge has mm-hmm. to arraign you and say there is a reason to keep you or there is not a reason to keep you. Mm-hmm. So constitutional rights being violated all over the place. Now, mm-hmm. Michael, you're Canadian. Is that uh, something that is part of the Canadian constitutional system also? Yeah, I would. Uh, I'm not definitely not a constitutional uh, expert or an expert on rights. But yeah, it just seemed that the, the setting that, um, you know, liberties were being taken. And I guess we've kind of had an episode of our own up here in Canada recently where uh, Prime Minister invoked the uh, Emergency Act to do with the uh, the trucker protests and basically quashes a lot of the rights of the truckers so they can basically clear them. There was a blockade at the Ambassador Bridge from Windsor, Detroit was was blockaded and there was a blockade in, in the nation's capital in Ottawa too. So, so there was a lot of uh, talk back and forth that, okay, something has to be done, but basically quash the constitutional rights of the people to protest. You know, so there was a lot of back and forth on that. Was, there, there still is if it was the right thing to do or not. So yeah, it happens in Canada as well. And there's gunfire from the rooftops and the blood begins to spill. Well, the state police and the National Guard were firing from the rooftops. We know that because that's their sort of modus operandi in these kinds of circumstances. But there was also a guy who was mistaken for a sniper. This is a gentleman who was on the rooftop of his building trying to make sure that the flames from an adjoining building didn't spread to his. And the National Guard thought, oh, he must be a sniper because he's on the roof and they shot him dead. Yeah. Which is tragic. A true tragedy that comes out of this. Black Day in July. Then Gordon goes into a bridge and he does this twice because now he's done three or four verses in the same format. In the mansion of the governor, there's nothing that is known for sure. Now, that's probably more true than metaphor, because this is 1967. Lansing is 100 miles away from Detroit, give or take a few. There's no live feed. There's no satellite. There's certainly no social media. So I imagine there is a decent amount of confusion, people running around the state capitol saying, we don't know what's going on. We don't know what's going on. Yeah. Uh, The telephone is ringing and the pendulum is swinging. And I love that because it's a metaphor for power. 
you know, yeah. when the pendulum is swinging, it means that power is going from one side of the political spectrum to another side. But on the other hand, maybe it isn't swinging. What do you think? I think it is. It's a back and forth. Like uh, it's, it's definitely chaos. It's definitely a struggle. Who's right? Who's wrong? There's two sides here. And, you know, I, I think maybe some pub, the public opinion is going back and forth. You've got one side that thinks that the writers have a just cause and others are saying no, that's um, something that has to be quashed. But uh, yeah, so I think it's definitely back and forth. What, what I like about the bridge too was the, he starts it with in the mansion of the governor. So right there, there's kind of a, a huge contrast. You've got the chaos in Detroit and then it swings to the mansion of the governor. So it's almost like, well, the governor is, a, is very much detached, very much away from what's going on there. It's like another world. And I just think it accentuates the difference of class structure where you've got the people that are dealing with this riot in Detroit, and then you've got the people who have the power to do something about it detached and miles and miles away in a different world. And it just kind of shows the two opposites there. Yeah, there's a real disconnect between those two yeah. worlds. And you can almost imagine if this was a TV movie, you know, how they would cut between those two and they'd con contrast what's going on in the streets of Detroit with what's going on in a relatively quiet state capital. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And they wonder how it happened and they really know the reason. So they may have been publicly expressing surprise, saying, you know, we yeah. don't know what happened and these people are overreacting yeah. and that we don't know why they're rioting. But they know, they know about yeah. the racial tensions that have been happening all over the country for at least the last 10 years. Exactly. Four, but certainly it was in, in the media for the past 10 years. Um, exactly. And they know about the police misconduct. They've probably gotten complaints, even at the mm -hmm. state level. They just don't want to admit it. Right, exactly. And it's so it's a, an effort to, you know, shore up their power. And it wasn't just the temperature and it wasn't just the season. That's poetic license, but I thought it was a great way to round out the verse. Yeah, and it's going back to that expression, long, hot summer, so... I know that was very popular in the media, in the media back then. It's almost like Lightfoot saying, no, it's not because of the temperature, it's the, the heat. It's not because it's the long summer. It's more than just that. There is a deeper cause, and it's going back to what's been building up for years. Motor City's burning, and the flames are running wild. There were 412 buildings when this was all over that were either completely burned down or were so badly damaged that they were gutted later on. And I can't help but thinking that many of those buildings were not equipped with fire hoses, and many of them were probably constructed with fairly flammable material. And it's also possible that the fire department just simply couldn't get through you know, because of all the other violence that was going on. So there's another right. real tragic note to the whole thing. They reflect upon the waters of the river and the lake. Now, I've never been to Detroit. And so I don't, I, I know that it's near the Great Lakes, but can yeah. do you know about what the bodies of water are that are right near Detroit? I've been to Detroit. It was a long time ago. So you've got the Detroit River, which isn't very wide there. You can see from Windsor, you can see across to Detroit and, uh, so the Ambassador Bridge that goes across there is, uh, I guess that's the main trade route uh, connecting uh, the two countries. Yeah, it's 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 a beautiful setting. Like to be in Windsor, looking across the uh, the river to Detroit, it like it's a beautiful setting. It 
Gordon's always had an affinity for the, you know, the waters, the Great Lakes. So I think he's kind of contrasting filthy pavements in Detroit in this riot with the beauty of the surrounding and just such a huge contrast. I think it's very effective. It just makes things even even worse when it's surrounded by the beauty of the river and the lake around. Yeah. And I think the that river that you're talking about is connecting Lake Huron and Lake Erie. Yes. So it's a domestic trade route in addition to a trade route between Canada and the States. Right. We'll be right back to our conversation with Michael Howitt about Black Day in July. But first, a word from one of our podcast partners. Welcome to Books Boys. Every month, Nadine and PJ tell you all about the books they've been reading and make some recommendations from our old favorites, plus surprise call-ins from authors to talk about the works that they're writing, original music, prize giveaways, and more. That's Books Boys on BooksBoys.com and all good podcatchers. Books Boys. Get it. Buy it. And everyone is listening and everyone's awake. The eyes of the world are on this place. I mean, everybody knew what was going on because by this time we have satellite link up okay and we have television coverage and no one can get any sleep in and around detroit because of the riots because of the sirens because of the gunfire because of all the incidental noise and i've never been up for five straight days and i don't want to be up for five straight days but (laughs) definitely not i can't even imagine the kind of stress and the kind of conditions that that must have been the printing press is turning and the news is quickly flashed and the thing that I find kind of odd about this is that the riot was in the news media. We've talked about that already. And the Detroit Free Press actually won a Pulitzer Prize for the local reporting of this. Yeah. And that is, pardon me, that's a hell of a way to earn a Pulitzer, you know, talking about things yeah. like this. Definitely, yeah. And you read your morning paper and you sip your cup of tea and you wonder just in passing, is it him or is it me? Michael, what do you think he's talking about in that line? Well, I think it goes back to the detachment that, you know, it's not just a Detroit thing. We can't be naive enough to be like for myself. I'm in Toronto. I'm reading the morning paper, having tea. It's nice and comfortable here. There's nothing to worry about here. It's nice and peaceful. You know, we can't be naive to think that. You know, we're not associated with, we're not the cause of it. You know, you wonder just in passing, is it him or is it me? It's just kind of when you when you wonder just in passing, it's kind of like an afterthought, like you give it some thought, but then it's kind of like, well, it's not that important. So let's go on to other things. So, you know, I, I think he's saying we're we're not taking it seriously. We're not getting involved. And that's not the right thing to do. You know, Phil Oaks wrote a song that actually made the charts. The, called Outside of a Small Circle of Friends. I don't know if you've ever heard it. No, uh, I know Phil Oaks, but don't know that song. Yeah, no. that particular one, it's 
talking about, you know, all these terrible things, you know, maybe we should do something about it. But then over and over, he comes back to this chorus saying, I'm sure it wouldn't interest anybody outside of a small circle of friends. Yeah. And it's the same kind of indifference, you know, uh, somebody in Toronto or Ottawa or maybe in Vancouver or someplace in the States or overseas, you look at this in the paper and you think, oh, isn't that awful? Isn't that too bad? And then you swallow your tea and you go on with your life. Yeah, exactly. But the people there are hurting and being killed, you know, by what is going on there. Yeah. In the office of the president, the deed is done, the soldiers sent. LBJ did send in two divisions, uh, and we've got the National Guard that uh, George Romney has called in, and the local police have been summoned in by the mayor of Detroit. So there's a lot of law and order firepower on the ground here. There's really not much choice, you see. It looks to us like anarchy. And I'm not trying to defend the Johnson administration in this, but when you are a thousand miles away or more, as they were in Washington. And Mm -hmm. you're involved with so many other things in 1967, 1968. The Vietnam War is not going well. Race relations are not going well. Johnson's not getting the kind of support that he once was for the Great Society. An uprising, like you look at this, and if all the time you have is a minute, you know, on the evening news, of course it's going to look like anarchy. Right. um, Because there doesn't seem to be any reason for it. So, I'm not saying that Johnson was right in sending the troops, but I think it's understandable why he made that request. And especially when he gets a call from George Romney saying, you got to help us out. There were other political aspects of it, partisan political aspects. I'm not going to get into those, but Mm -hmm. those are the things that I think of. And then the tanks go rolling in to patch things up as best they can. Michael, how would a tank patch anything up in, during a Detroit riot. Yeah, patch things up. Yeah, you can just taste the, the sarcasm and cynicism here. It's uh, basically they're going in, they're going to bulldoze the uh, this situation in a submission. Uh, you know, we're, we're going to just get rid of it at any cost and really not dealing with the root cause. But yeah, it's just it just drips with sarcasm and cynicism there, I think. The next line is another one I wanted to ask you about. There is no time to hesitate. The speech is made. The dues can wait. What's he talking about? Well, I think there is no time to hesitate. I, I could be they just want to get rid of this problem as soon as possible. And again, they're not really doing with the cause. They just want to put this behind us. They've got to quash this right as quickly as they can. And so we're going to talk tough. We're going to say we're going to deal with, with the situation. We're going to bulldoze it down and deal with it no matter what the cost is down the road. So really, it, these actions don't de-escalate anything. If, if, if anything, it, it just, uh, you know, these racial tensions, they'll just fester and linger on. But we're not going to hesitate. We've made our decision. We've made the speech. And uh, let's do it. And, you know, the consequences we'll deal with another time. The way that you phrased that was really apt because it's like you're treating a symptom. Yeah. But the disease goes on. Exactly, yeah. The streets of Motor City now are quiet and serene. This would be in the days following the riots. But the shapes of gutted buildings strike terror to the heart. And you say, how did it happen? And you say, how did it start? And people look at these ruins in magazines and newspapers and on TV. And they think, is this going to happen in my city? Are things so bad that my hometown is going to go up in flames like this? And as we've seen 
many did, although not to the degree that Detroit did. And then people who are well removed from the situation are curious, but probably not to the point that they're going to be going out of their way to find out anything more. You know, they might talk about it at Sunday dinner or something. Well, do you know anything yeah. about that? You know, how did this start? And then to me, this is the most poignant part of the song. Why can't we all be brothers? Why can't we live in peace? But the hands of the have-nots keep falling out of reach. Is that the crux of the song for you too? Definitely. I think it's such a great lyric, the hands of the have-nots keep falling out of reach, that, you know, I think it, that sums up everything right there, that that's what the root problem is. Um, that's what we've got to, to look at to bridge these inequities. And this part of the song almost reminds me of Don Quixote, where it's, it just reminds me of some of the lyrics from that song. It, it's kind of gone from the ugly and horror earlier in the song to... Um, there is a solution. There is some hope. So, yeah, this is what we got to look at to try to uh, to deal with what's going on. The hands of the have-nots keep falling out of reach, meaning they're falling lower and lower and lower. Yeah, um, yeah it's such a great lyric. I love it. Yeah, yeah he really did. That was just masterful. And then yeah. you have a repetition of the first verse, and then he gets out. Well, the song was originally on his third album, which was Did She Mention My Name in 1967. And you had talked earlier, Michael, about the fact that Lightfoot is still trying to sort of crack the American market. The interesting thing is that there were a number of radio stations in the States that actually banned this song uh, for a while. And they did that because I guess they didn't want to remind people. Maybe they thought that people were going to get ideas. That this is, you know, the thing to do. And then Lightfoot went on CBC and said pretty angrily, I think, and I'm quoting directly, a lot of them, the radio stations, don't want to upset their listeners. It's the housewife in the morning. Let's give her something that'll make her happy. Why give her something that'll make her think? Yeah, I've I, I seen that as well. And he also mentioned in a similar vein that, you know, these top 40 stations, you know, you've got a lot of, and I think he used the word teeny boppers, I think, but the young people are listening and they don't want to hear about this stuff. They want to be entertained. And I, I think with, with this song, the lyrics were so direct. They were so gritty and they referred to an actual event that, you know, it was just um, too much to take. They thought it would fester anger or make the situation worse. In that same interview, he, he brought up the fact that uh, Martin Luther King was assassinated right around the time the song was released. So, so that could have had an effect of, of kind of amping up the anger. And I don't know, if, if that was Gordon, I, he was proud of the song. He, he actually said it wasn't controversial. He, he's just basically stating the facts. So I, he didn't really say it, but I think he was a bit uh, frustrated with the reaction of the song. And and I know the last few years with his record label, United Artists, wasn't the, the best of years. And and I don't know if this was the tip of the iceberg or if this was the start. I'm just guessing. But maybe he thought that the record company really didn't have his back, that when these radio stations in the U.S., I think there was 30 states in the U.S. radio stations that wouldn't play this song. Maybe he thought the record company didn't have his back, that you know they, they could have um, pushed for the song more. So, so I think he was frustrated and, and maybe disappointed. And he kind of made the comment that um, maybe it's not his place as a Canadian to comment on American politics, but, you know, it didn't stop Neil Young from writing a song 
Ohio two years later about uh, the Kent State riots. So he wasn't the first or he wasn't the last. But I guess in Gordon's defense, so maybe he was frustrated. He kind of pivoted. He kind of discarded the song. He didn't play it anymore in concert. Even in his songbook retrospective of all the you know songs he's done over the years, he didn't include this song. So maybe he kind of pivoted. He still talks about social issues and protest songs, but in a much more subtle and understated manner, like Sit Down Young Stranger and Protocol. And I guess uh, there's several songs that he, he wrote that still deal with protest, Summer Side of Life as well. And, you know, so he could have been disappointed and frustrating with the, the reaction of the song. I don't think he thought it was warranted, but it is what it is. We'll be right back to our conversation with Michael Howitt about Black Day in July. But first, a word from one of our podcast partners. Radio is so much different than it was in the 80s. We had it all. The music, the movies, the DJs, and morning shows. Back to the 80s Radio is a show from the 80s in podcast form. We bring the memories from that awesome decade back. Join Toscano and Chang every Friday as they take you on a ride back in time, sharing their experiences and laughs. Stop on by and discover some of the wacky things this crazy duo comes up with. They talk about it all, the good, the bad, and the ugly of the greatest decade. Don't miss the greatest 80s podcast in the world. Back to the 80s radio. You mentioned Neil Young, and I couldn't help but hear some resemblance uh, between the two, at least musically. We'll talk about that in just a second. Lightfoot has been very clear about the fact he's not Dylan in the sense that he didn't start his career doing topical protest songs. And he wasn't Phil Oakes, who I think really clung to the idea that his songs were a weapon, you know, against who or what who can say, but Lightfoot was much more interested in being artistic and he did that. And sometimes that turns out to be political and sometimes it turns out to be not political. What's your favorite musical aspect of the song, Michael? Yeah. Again, the, the song is, is, is very unique to me. So I, I think especially the, the drums and percussion throughout the song, a lot of his earlier stuff, it was just Gordon's 12 string guitar. That was the, that carried the rhythm. And then you had a bass and uh, and then Red Shea, towards the end, or another lead guitarist, uh, kind of filling in the rhythm as well. So the drums, percussion were a big thing, and the and they're throughout the song, and they they really drive the song. That they make the song aggressive, I think. And and Gordon's vocal pauses, the the drums get louder. So I think it really accentuates the the mayhem that's happening in Detroit then. And then I think there's a great contrast with those two breaks you, you mentioned about uh, in the mansion of the governor and the office of the president. So things get quiet. They get a lot more subdued. The volume kind of goes down and it, it's like, okay, this is a different world. This is the office of the president. This is the mansion of the governor. Things aren't so crazy here. And uh, so I think that's very effective to contrast what's going on in the politicians that are dealing with it, with this and what's going on in the city itself. So I think that's a great part of the song, how those two interludes, whatever you want to call it, contrast with the, um, with the rest of the song. Yeah, the drums was probably the second most favorite thing for me. I think it was Huey McCracken's electric guitar fills that really yeah. did it because they added a real color to the whole thing. And Lightfoot up until that time hadn't used a whole lot of electric guitar and he hadn't used a whole lot of drums and percussion on his records. And I don't know if Herbie Lavelle will be playing on future albums. I know Jim Gordon and then Barry Keane did a lot of that. 
And electric guitar, I think Red and Terry Clements did a lot of that, you know, in future albums. Yeah. Um, the people that played on this one, Lightfoot, of course, Lavelle played drums and percussion, McCracken played electric guitar, Red Shea was playing lead acoustic guitar, John Simon, who I think had also done some managing of Gordon around this time. Yeah, uh, he actually produced this record as well. Oh, John he was Simon. the producer? Okay, great, yeah. thanks. Because yeah. I know he showed up in the Jennings biography, I just wasn't sure what the capacity was and yeah. then john stockfish uh, on bass and so the original kernel of lightfoot sound was red and john and gordon so you can right. see that it's just kind of built out from that a little bit michael you had mentioned that he kind of abandoned the song he's only played it four times that i could find there may have been a fifth time but there's only four that setlist.fm mentions and after 1971 he didn't play it anymore at all Part of that is, as you said, he doesn't feel that it's appropriate for a Canadian to be remarking on American politics. He thinks it's preachy, Gordon does. But I think another part of it, and this is kind of rushing ahead, is that this is a song that's really, I think, only appropriate in its context. It is not one that is sort of a universal protest song like the times they are a change in or I ain't marching anymore yeah. or handsome johnny the, the richie havens tune this is really about a very particular set of circumstances and it's certainly a great historical song but it's not one that you would necessarily trot out every time you were going to a protest and you wanted to set the mood and i can't think of a better way to say oh, that. No. do you have any thoughts on that i think he may have played it more than four times in the cbc interview you mentioned he played it in Los Angeles, he played it, I guess, near Boston. And then when you mentioned he played in Detroit and he apologized for playing it in Detroit. Right. And um, one interesting place he played it, um, around this time, Johnny Cash had released Folsom Prison Blues album where he did the, uh, the concert at Folsom Prison. So, um, so I guess Lightfoot was kind of friends with Johnny Cash at the time. Like, I think he, he appeared on his TV show so, so Lightfoot did a concert at the Kingston Penitentiary, which is a maximum security penitentiary here in Ontario. And there was no publicity, whatever, but there were, there were reporters there during the concert. So, so he did a Johnny Cash and he played a set at the Kingston Penitentiary not too long after the song came out. So this was in Jennings' book. So he mentioned right. uh, he played Canadian Railroad Trilogy and he said, uh, you know, it's a great song, but not much reaction. But then when he played Boss Man from the Did She Mention My Name album, which is basically railing on your boss, you know, the, yeah. the inmates got into a bit of a, they loved it. But when he played this song, Black Day in July, that got the greatest reaction from the, uh, from the inmates. So I thought that was kind of neat. And he also, there was a TV special here on the CBC TV in 1968 called Wherefore and Why. So it was an hour long TV special about Gordon and some of his songs. So oh, wow. he actually recorded a, an acoustic version of Black Day in July, just acoustic guitar, like I guess Red Shea and, and Lightfoot and Stockfish. And there was percussion in this song and they played it, but there is a video montage of scene of pictures from the Detroit riot with this song. That was kind of effective. See, it's, it's on YouTube now. If, if you look and check it out on YouTube, it's called Wherefore and the Why. It aired in March 1968 on CBC. And, um, and and I'm thinking, I never, I've never seen Gordon play it in concert, but you'd think he must have played it in Canada, I guess, in the late 1967, early 1968. So he's probably only played it a handful of times, but it, I think he's played it more than four times. But yeah, 
he doesn't play anymore. He mentions he doesn't play that. He doesn't play for loving me anymore. And he doesn't play the, his song, New Vivant Ensemble anymore, even though it's a Canadian song about the French, the Quebec separatist movement. He says he's not really uh, qualified to speak on politics either. He's not a politician. So, so I guess those are three songs he, he doesn't play anymore. Certainly while he was promoting the album, he must have sung it a few times. Uh, it's just we don't necessarily have a historical record of that. Right, right. Um, this song was released as a single, and it went to 68 in Canada, which is okay, you know, not great. But it did not chart in the United States. And I remain convinced to this good day that if the radio stations had not refused to play it for whatever reason, that it would have hit the charts uh, in the United yeah. States. But the single did not chart here. Neither did the album. Um, the album went to 21 in Canada, but it, again, yeah. did not make an impact on the American charts. Yeah. The song has been re-recorded, as far as I know, by two different artists. Now, people have probably recorded it sort of on the sly, but I know that Jean-Guy Barkan did a version of it in French, and then maybe the one that we are most familiar with is the one that the Tragically Hip did. And I think they did it in 2003. Have you heard that one, Michael, or do you have any knowledge of it? Uh, I, I haven't heard the uh, Jean-Guy Barkan version, but I, I know the Tragically Hip version really well. They're not really well known outside of Canada, but here in Canada, Tragically Hip, you know, pretty much up there with Gordon Lightfoot, uh, Brian Adams, Tragically Hip, they're... Uh, They've got such a loyal fan base, you know, like Rush as well. So uh, I have heard the the Tragically Hip version. It was on, I guess, the tribute album to Gordon Lightfoot called Beautiful, where a bunch of Canadian acts recorded covers. And I think it's a really good version, the Tragically Hip version. It's 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 edgy. And, you know, unfortunately, the lead singer for the Tragically Hip, Gord Downey, passed away from brain cancer a few years back, so not around anymore. But they were huge Gordon Lightfoot fans. And, yeah, I really like that version. I, I think Gordon would have approved of that for sure. You know, there's a, a kind of an irony there, a kind of a coincidence. You had mentioned that you did a paper uh, yeah. on this song, and the bass player for the Tragically Hip, a guy named Gord Sinclair, he did a term paper based on that song when he was a student at Queen's University in Kingston. Yeah. Uh, so it really hits home for that, that band. Kudos to them for recording it. Yeah. Michael, as we sort of wrap up here, I don't know that there is anybody who could or would cover this song from modern music. I honestly don't want anybody else to do it for reasons that I've already mentioned. To me, it's very much in and of its context. And I love listening to it, but I don't want to have anybody do it again. And I really hope nobody feels like they have to in terms of, well, guess what? Here we are and it's still going on. Do you have any thoughts? Yeah, I'm kind of, uh, I think just about uh, every uh, podcast you've done, everybody kind of says, well, nobody can do it as good as Gordon. And yeah, if nobody else covered this song, I wouldn't be disappointed. But if, if somebody did, I don't know, like maybe somebody like Dave Grohl of the Foo Fighters, he seems to have a, an acute social conscious conscience that maybe the Foo Fighters could cover it or maybe Eddie Vedder or Pearl Jam. There's a couple of Canadian bands, the Arkells out of Hamilton, I don't Probably they're not that well known, but they're. Uh, I think they could do a nice edgy version. And there's another group called the Headstones in Canada, and they actually did a kind of an edgy version of uh, the Requiem Fitzgerald. So I think they could do a good job of this one if they applied themselves. And actually, the the Headstones, the lead singer, 
His name is Hugh Dillon, and uh, he's actually an actor too. So he was most recently he was the sheriff in Yellowstone for the first few seasons. So oh, no kidding. Yeah. Okay. So uh, it's kind of a rock punk type band. So I think they could do a good job of this song. You know, as we're sitting here, it kind of would have been fun to hear the Dave Matthews band uh, yeah. take a shot yeah. at it. But you know, for me, that's the only one besides the ones that you've mentioned that really pops up. Michael, let's say that you had a chance to pick Gordon's opening song at his next concert and you are front row center. What song do you think you would want him to play as the opening of his first set? Yeah, I've always thought a good opening song. It's actually from the same album as Black Day in July. It's Wherefore and Why. It's it's up-tempo, it's upbeat. It's got a you know positive message to it. So it opens up, when I woke this morning, something inside of me told me this would be my day. I saw the morning train. I felt the wind change too many times along the way. And come on, sunshine, what can you show me? And it just goes like that. So I think that'd be a perfect song to uh, to open up uh, a set with. That's a good one. And we'll probably end up doing that at some point on the show yeah. here. Michael, where can people find you online? Online, either on Facebook, Instagram, Michael under slash Howitt. And I've got a YouTube channel called Michael Howitt Music. So I've got a bunch of uh, original songs and covers on the YouTube channel, and I've actually got 48 Gordon Lightfoot covers. They're just uh, something I've done as a hobby started during the uh, beginning of the pandemic. You know, I love Gordon Lightfoot so much. Actually, one of the uh, farmer's markets I played north of Toronto last summer, the mayor of the town is not here in Markham, but he came up to me and he said, you're the guy that does the Gordon Lightfoot songs, right? And I said, yeah, that's me. So, <laughs> so. I'm sure I'll come up with some more covers of Gordon Lightfoot's as I, as I go on, but yeah, I just love his music. Yeah. Great stuff. Michael, thank you so much for being back on the show. It's always fun to talk to you and we hope we can have you back for appearance number three. That'd be great. Thanks so much, Michael. I really, really enjoy this. Thank you so much for doing this. Our next episode will feature Kevin and Aaron Hester. They'll be coming back on the show and they'll be talking about mother of a minor's child from the old dance records album from 1972. Until then, this is Mike Messner reminding you, run, and we hope we can have you back for appearance number three. That'd be great. Thanks so much, Michael. I really, really enjoy this. Thank you so much for doing this. Our next episode will feature Kevin and Aaron Hester. They'll be coming back on the show, and they'll be talking about Mother of a Minor's Child from the Old Dance Records album from 1972. Until then, this is Mike Messner reminding you, run for the roses, but don't forget to stop and smell them. We'll see you next time. Black day in July Motor city madness Has touched the countryside And through the smoke and cinders You can hear it far and wide The doors are quickly bolted And the children locked inside Black day in July Black day in July And the soul of Motor City even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.